Good morning. This morning we're going to be in uh, the book of Titus. Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, we thank you for calling us here this morning to hear your word. May you be gracious to us, God, and incline our ears and our hearts to what your spirit says through um, your word. And I pray that I could be clear and that we would just be um, blessed and encouraged and um, edified through what we hear this morning. We pray and ask all this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the summer of 1994, Disney released an animated movie, one most of you have probably seen here, called The Lion King, right? The movie tells the story of a soon-to-be heir, a young lion named Simba, whose diabolical uncle, uncle, Scar, devised and carried out a plan to kill Simba's father, Mufasa, who happened to be the king at that time in the Pride Lands. After Scar mercilessly kills Mufasa, he, um, yeah, yeah, after Scar mercilessly kills Mufasa, he tells Simba, the next in line to be king, that essentially it was his fault that his father died and that because of that, he needed to flee and, you know, just basically skip town. So Simba, you know, he's scared, he's young, he forgets the throne, he takes off, and he leaves. Sometime later in the story, after Simba had sort of taken up a new life um, outside of the Pride Lands, uh, there's this sort of apocalyptic scene where um, there's this huge image of Mufasa that sort of forms in the clouds, and he's walking out of the stars, and, you know, and there's a dialogue between Simba and Mufasa. Um, And then these words are exchanged, beginning with Mufasa. Simba, father... Simba, you have forgotten me. No, how could I? You have forgotten who you are, and so have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. How can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son, and the one true king. Remember who you are. So this was undoubtedly one of the most touching scenes in all of Disney movie history. Um, I got touched up when I was reviewing it on YouTube. Uh, But if you've seen the movie, you know that this sort of functioned or this uh, event sort of served as a catalyst for Simba to go back home and reclaim uh, reclaim the throne and become king. So uh, yeah, Mufasa says, remember who you are. That's the essence of what he's saying. 
And in a similar way, though not in as sort of visionary or an apocalyptic way, um, Paul tells Titus to remind the churches of certain things. And it's those things that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, The first of which is to remember our orders. And the second is to remember who we were. And then thirdly, uh, we're to remember our rescue. So our first point is uh, that we are reminded of our orders. So early on in this letter, in the New Testament, short letter, it's only 46 verses long, we see that during a missionary journey, both Paul and Titus were ministering the gospel on the island of Crete, also planting churches. Um, Titus, who is a Gentile, a young guy, who likely came to the faith through Paul's own ministry, um, was kind of Paul's right-hand man there, and he was left there on the island as Paul's representative. So when Paul left, Titus, as the delegate, uh, he was charged to do all kinds of things. He was charged to appoint elders in the new churches, to rebuke false teachers and adversaries, to teach sound doctrine, to exhort, to command, to discipline, and what we're most going to be focusing on this morning, to remind. And there on the island of Crete, it's clear there was a sort of a corruptive influence, a worldly way of thinking present among the, the, the islanders there. Um, that was sort of functioning or serving as an outside pressure and a temptation to the churches there. Um, yeah, so there's a, a, a Cretan prophet and priest named Epimenides, um, and he says something that Paul quotes that kind of gives us some insight into just sort of the sort of the moral character of who these folks were. So this is in chapter one. Uh, the apostle says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said. Cretans are evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Oh, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Okay? And on top of that, there were greedy false teachers within the church who were upsetting and leading others astray within the church through false teaching, uh, immorality, this undue focus on genealogies and the law and myths and controversy, all kinds of things. So that's sort of like the, the backdrop, uh, um, what's going on in this letter as Paul is writing to Titus. So in contrast to this, in contrast to the worldly influence within the church and outside the church, in contrast to the Cretans who were earlier in the letter spoken of as detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, Paul charged Titus to remind the churches to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So in life, we're often reminded of so much, right? We're reminded of how, maybe how dark the human heart is or how beautiful the natural world is, how short life is, uh, sort of our house projects that we put off, or maybe, you know, if you're getting older, how, you know, swiftly your, your hairline can recede. I'm noticing that more and more as I get older. But Paul reminds us of the most worthy things. And one of those things is that it is God's good pleasure that all of us, all who have been adopted into his family, should assume a posture of submission to our authorities and rulers. Elsewhere, the apostle states that, you know, that the rulers that we do have now weren't placed there by mere whim or chance, but rather by God's sovereign determination, whether that's for our good or for our ill. It's, you know, that's not what's in... uh, being spoken about here, but he says in Romans, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. 
For, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. As the one who raises up leaders and brings them down, God is sovereign over the appointment of the leaders in our lives right now. But this is nothing new. This is how it's been since the beginning of the world and will be until the close of the age. But of course, this is not to say that there have never been tyrannical or abusive or power-hungry rulers who, instead of repressing evil and encouraging well-doing, repress well-doing and encourage evil. Of course, there are limits to our obedience in these cases, for in such cases where the authorities seek to overstep their bounds, issuing commands that contradict our faith. Of course, with the early church in Acts, we say that we must obey God rather than men. But that's not really the focus in what Paul's saying here. And neither is the focus on strictly political attitudes and actions. You could say that what he's saying is kind of, it's metapolitical, that it goes above or beyond or behind political statements. Or I like this better, that it's pre-political, that it goes before and norms all of our political thinking and acting. His words here, specifically to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, his words should give the proper preconditions for living and thinking Christianly in a political context. And, of course, the word of God here applies if our leaders are just, unjust, male, female, Muslim, Christian, Mormon, uh, atheist, whatever, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The word of God is the same. Well then, Brother Mike, you might say, how, how does this work out in real life? How, does, you know, how can I submit to my authorities concretely? Well, there are three concrete ways in which we can submit to our authorities. The first, so the first, God's word, right, which is given for our good, tells us that all of us are to pray for those who are in positions of authority. And of course, that prayer includes things like supplication and thanksgiving. So an example could be that we pray that the Lord would give to our rulers wisdom and a mind to rule justly, for instance. Second, and perhaps most painfully, we're called to pay taxes, right? To pay them truthfully without cutting corners, to truly render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's. And if there are some young folks in here, and all I got to say is if you don't understand what that means yet, then give thanks. Uh, <laughs> soon enough you will. And thirdly, as we see in our text this morning, we are called to be obedient, essentially to obey the laws of the land. But moving on, uh, the apostle goes on to tell Titus and to us today that our life as a redeemed people is not only to affect how we relate to the political order that God has established, but also to the broader social order in which we find ourselves. So our families, neighborhoods, marketplace, workplace, and even within the household of God. He says that we are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So did you see the shift to sort of the more universal language there that we're to speak evil of no one and to show perfect courtesy towards all people? So even to the least in our society, not just to the powerful and influential, those who sort of... Um, could possibly bring us advancement in our life or in our careers, but to the forgotten and to the, you know, the undesirable and to the lonely and to the uh, different. We are to extend kindness toward all people, he says. 
So even toward the overly chatty and annoying sibling to the condescending coworker, the naysaying neighbor who might always be up to contradict and make fun of our beliefs towards all people, we are to avoid insults, slander, and petty arguments. Instead, demonstrating the sanctifying and power, uh, saving power of God in our lives, which we'll talk more about later. Well, why must we exercise patience and forbearance towards other people, even towards unbelievers? What reason or motive do we actually have for this? Well, this leads us to our second point, and it's going to be in verse 3. So point two, reminded of our past. Let's get a drink of water here. In verse 3, the apostle to the Gentiles says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So he says that we should be gentle, peaceable, forbearing towards all people, because we ourselves, before God drew us to himself, we're in the same position as the unbeliever. And indeed, we would still be in the same place of passing our days in malice and envy had God not snatched us from the fire. We can extend grace to the graceless because we know that apart from God's quickening grace and regeneration, we ourselves would be just as wretched and hopeless as those that he describes in verse 3. And I should add a quick note before we go further. Um, it would be easier and maybe more convenient to sort of gloss over this verse, right? It's kind of dreary or bleak, um, Paul's description of mankind here. But, you know, it, yeah, it would be easier to skip over that and kind of get to the salvation stuff in verses 4 through 7. And, you know, we are going to get to that, and I think we need to get to that, but it's necessary, I think, that we stop at verse 3 for a second. You know, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to, to write this, and so if the Holy Spirit thought it was worthy of our attention, then, of course, we should pay attention to it. Um, yes. So, <clears throat> lost myself here. Okay. Yes. So, this passage, right, though it's dreary and bleak, it reminds us of who we were before we came to know Jesus, and consequently, how great a salvation that God gives to us. Furthermore, it teaches us a little bit about who our unbelieving neighbors are and really how desperately they need the gospel, how, you know, no matter how much it might appear to the contrary, right? Um, because sometimes you know, we see people and they, you know, they just seem really nice. They're sort of like a, maybe we got a Buddhist Mr. Rogers as our neighbor. And, you know, well, Paul, you know, I, I don't think this guy's you know, hating others and being hated and living you know, in slavery to passions and things like that. Um, but, you know, we do realize that God has, God has given to us sort of the final and definitive and true interpretation of humanity. And so we should stick with that. So the question is, right, do these folks fit the description? Do all people in unbelief fit this description? Yes. And that Paul, so yeah, the answer is yes. And how can we see this, Right. Uh, that Paul is talking about all people indiscriminately, we could see here in verse 3 when he includes himself. When he says, we ourselves were once foolish, etc. The apostle includes himself in this graphic and vivid description of fallen human nature. And though the apostle, before he was an apostle, 
may not have had much in the way of outward gross sins, right? Because he saw himself as blameless in relation to the law. We understand from the word of God that he too was blind to God's gospel, dead in sin and without the fear of the Lord. Right? And the same goes for those who may outwardly appear virtuous. So those maybe who are caught up in humanitarian efforts, um, you know, I mean, just, there's all kinds of examples, you know, feeding the poor, rescuing people out of trafficking, all those things have worth, and it, it definitely. Um, but we do wonder, you know, if they fit into this description and if what they're doing is truly a good work, right? So what Paul was doing before he came to know the Lord, those weren't true good works in the biblical sense. And the same goes for those that I just described, maybe your Buddhist Mr. Rogers' neighbor. How, why, how could we say that? I mean, that sounds harsh, right? But we know, well, we could say that because the Lord sees the hearts of all. The Lord sees the hearts of all. And those who have not been washed by his spirit are still blind and full of misunderstanding and corruption before God. And it is before the face of God that we all live, not just unbelievers, but all of us. So when it comes to good works, right, for a, a true good work to take place, a good work worthy of the name, um, I guess you could say there are three things that sort of come into play in Scripture. Um, yeah. The first thing is that it is done in faith. So good work is done in faith. So it's not done according to the flesh. And we could see some of that come out where the apostle says that whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Secondly, it's done according to God's word, right? So the content of the good work isn't merely something that comes from our own imaginations, but it's in accord with God's revelation. And thirdly, it is done to the glory of God. It's done to the glory of God. So good work in the biblical sense is done in faith, according to the word of God, and to the glory of God. And apart from Christ, it's plain that such things are just impossible for those in the state Related in verse 3. Well, then what are we to make of these sort of outward works that our neighbors might be doing? Well, if we remember the ark, if we remember the flood, the rainbow, the covenant that God made with Noah, we remember and understand that God gives common grace to this world for the preservation of the world. And part of that common grace is the restraint of evil. And so, I mean, we don't want to spend any more time on this, but that's how we can make sense of these sort of civic virtues or these outward righteous acts that happen apart from saving faith in Christ. So what can we take away from remembering with the apostle who we were before knowing Jesus, before knowing God as love, before receiving the promise that he would be our God and we as people? Two things. First, we are taught humility. We're taught humility. It's hard to lift our noses up at others who do not know Christ when we realize that we ourselves do not make ourselves to differ. And Paul is he's great. He uh, brings this out beautifully in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So if you're tempted to be proud um, over against the unbelieving world, you know, if you think that your piety sort of makes you much better and you, you, you know, you get haughty over that, then this is a good thing to remember, to remember where you were 
before the Lord saved you. And that it is only by God and his grace and the cross work of his son that we are made to differ. Secondly, it teaches us thankfulness. It teaches us thankfulness. For if we do not make ourselves to differ, then truly we only have God to be thankful to. Right? We can bless God's name for rescuing us out of slavery to sin. Um causing us to pass our days in better ways than in malice and envy. And then related to that, if anything good comes from us, if we ever have a pure motive, do a good deed, a good work, according to God's word, then we realize that it comes to us through God's grace and through his mercy, if we just remember what Paul just said in verse 3. And it's to that grace and mercy that we're now going to turn for our final point. So point three, we were reminded of our rescue. So we've been reminded of our orders, our directives for life in this world before God and others. We've been reminded of who we were before coming to know the love of God. And to really put those two things that we just talked about into perspective, Paul reminds us of our rescue. For if we were just reminded of our orders without any mention of our rescue, right? So just reminded of our orders without any mention of our rescue, then we may be tempted to think that Fulfilling those orders uh, you know, somehow earns God's favor or merit. You know, then that would really do away. It would, wouldn't really make possible what we see in the New Testament. You know, a faith working through love or a striving born of gratitude. Not only that, if we were just reminded of our orders without reminding, being reminded of our rescue, we may be tempted to think that we could fulfill those orders in our own power without relying on God's spirit for renewal and for strength. Secondly, if we were reminded of our past without mention of our rescue, right? So reminded of our past, verse 3, without mention of everything else that Paul's about to talk about, we may be tempted to despair over ourselves and be anxious concerning our standing before God. But thankfully, Paul gives us the whole package here um, in Titus 3, 1 through 7. So in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us a densely packed and detailed description of that newness of life that God brings to us, that newness of life that makes possible the fulfillment of the commands in verses 1 and 2. He also shows us just how we're brought out of that moral depravity that we just spent so much time talking about in verse 3. So the main verb or action word for these few verses is uh, found in verse 5 where we read, He saved. He saved us. This is the foundation of all that follows here. So, quick story. Um, so, just a few weeks ago, Shelby, my wife, was out grocery shopping, and she found a diamond. <laughs> so, she, it was in a parking lot in North Park, just up the road. She found, we, we couldn't, we haven't been able to locate the owner so far, in case you're wondering. Um, but we, yes, yeah, so she, <laughs> she found a diamond. I mean, who, you know, I mean, I don't think I would be able to see that. You know, it's the middle of the day on the ground. But anyway, she found a diamond, right? Who finds a diamond on the ground while grocery shopping? I guess Shelby does. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing you notice when you look at a diamond, right, besides its beauty and its luster, is its uh, many angled flat surfaces, right, how it's multifaceted, right? So you can turn the diamond 360 degrees and view a number of different sharp angles. Well, the Bible talks about salvation in a similar way, I would say. So the, the main verb, right, he saved, consider that as the whole diamond. And all these other things that Paul talks about 
washing, regeneration, renewal, justification, in other contexts, propitiation or redemption, right? These are all different facets or faces or angles on this one diamond of salvation. Each angle communicates something different and beautiful about our salvation, reflecting light in a different way from the last angle, but they are all part of that one diamond of salvation. So we're not, probably not going to get to talk about every last thing that he mentioned, so just to give a summary of what's going on there, we're, we're going to talk about the main thing. Um, great. Okay, so we're told uh, in verse 5, yeah, we're told in verse 5, that the source of our salvation is not to be found in works done by us in righteousness. And in one sense, this is only all too obvious when we reflect back on Paul, on what he had just said, you know, about our being disinclined to all good and to being rebellious. And the whole idea of human merit that Paul is talking about here, right, not being saved by works of righteousness, this was a matter of concern and debate in Paul's day. And surprise, surprise, it's a matter of debate and concern in our day as well. But when you really think about it, it's, it's ludicrous, right, to consider that uh, an unholy person, through his or her own merits, through his or her own efforts, could somehow become acceptable and pure, spotless before God, right? I mean, this would be just as ridiculous as a leopard changing its own spots or a tree, a diseased tree, bearing good fruit or maybe a good tree bearing diseased fruit, right? It's, it's an abysmal nonsense. So instead, we find the root of our salvation not in works done by us in righteousness, but rather in the mercy of God, in the free mercy of God. An idea that is really just opposed and antithetical to the whole concept of human merit. So contrary to the popular adage, I know we've all heard it before, God helps those who help themselves. Here we see that God looks on in pity and rescues and helps those who are unable to help themselves. As we read elsewhere in Paul, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Paul says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So take heart. If you are wearied over your hang-ups, your failings, the remaining sin that wages war in your soul, take heart that our God is called the Father of all mercies. And take heart as well. For we are told numerous times in Scripture that God's mercy is great, that he will never forsake us, that he will finish the work that he began in us, and that his mercies never come to an end, but are new every morning. And be encouraged that our Lord came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So believe in your heart all these things concerning the mercy of our God. And for our last point, the final point, and for our last point this morning, let's look at how these mercies are realized, or I guess you could say actualized in history, brought home to our experience. The apostle says that we were saved according to God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are washed by the Spirit. Now consider, why do we do laundry, right? Why do we wash our clothes? Well, because they get dirty. Imagine you're out hiking all day, right? You spent the day out hiking, you come home, your clothes are probably going to have, you know, any number of things, sweat, dirt, 
maybe foul blood, bacteria, dead skin, all these gross things, right? Uh, so <laughs> after that being the case, you wouldn't dare walk into work the next day or maybe go to bed in those clothes, right? Because they're dirty and they need to be washed. And in a similar way, we were dirty from Adam's sin, from our time out in the world, filthy from spending our days in malice and envy. But the Spirit of God came to you and the Spirit of God came to me and washed us, scrubbed us, cleansed us, sprinkling clean water on us, cleansing us of our uncleanness. The Spirit of God gave us a new heart, removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, changing our most foundational affections and loves and attitudes, disarming our innate hostility to him and instead replacing it with a love for him and for his will. He makes us a new creation, Paul says. Behold, the old is past and the new has come. And our God is no miser. He is not stingy, but the Spirit is poured out upon us richly, abundantly, without measure, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Paul says. So it's on account of the perfect obedience and substitutionary death and glorious resurrection that all of these blessings come upon us, both God's mercy and God's Spirit. The Savior showers and refreshes us with the Holy Spirit from heaven because He was perfectly submissive and obedient to His Father's will. So we are given the Spirit by the Father through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're given the Spirit by the Father through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All three persons of the Godhead are intimately involved in our rescue and renewal. And it is by the renewal of the Holy Spirit that we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. He is the source of our strength for doing whatsoever thing God commands us in this life, whether it's submitting to authorities, not being quarrelsome, or loving our family. The same God who made the world is powerful enough to continuously mold and shape and form us into the image of his Son, and this he will surely do. As we conclude, let us be reminded, let us be reminded as Titus was reminded when Paul wrote this letter, and let us be reminded with the church in Crete how they were reminded when Titus followed through with Paul's orders to remind them of all these things. And with the Christian church throughout history who have read this letter, let us be reminded. We're reminded of God's will for our lives as we relate to our rulers and authorities and of how we should show perfect courtesy toward all people. We were reminded of the total depravity that God has rescued us from and that, so that we could be patient with those who are still without God in the world. And we are reminded of how God has saved us, how he has poured out his spirit in our hearts for rescue and renewal and all of this through Jesus Christ. And finally, let us be reminded of the living hope that is ours as God's children, as heirs of the kingdom of God and of eternal life. God will surely keep his promises he will not forsake us. So let us be encouraged. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that we can be challenged by it and that we could be um, reminded by it. And thankfully, God, that we can be encouraged by it. That you are a God of love and that you are merciful towards those who are weak and who need help. We thank you for being our rescuer and deliverer and forgiving us the Spirit. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves, 
as we go out into the world this week. We give thanks to you, God, and we are humbled before you. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.